Tafti just come in there. Former President Tabumbeki has just taken to the podium. Uh, let's have a when listen he to what he has to acknowledgements say. at the beginning. Uh, he will do that on behalf of both of us. Uh, so he has done that, including beloved wife and all of that. So there is no need for me to repeat all of that. <laughs> but as indeed has been said, this is the sixth uh, Africa Day lecture that we are we're holding. And I'd really like to say thank you very much to everybody for coming, uh, given particularly that uh, I'm quite sure that many of us were very busy yesterday. Uh, because uh, uh, indeed uh, the bulk of our, our celebrations of Africa Day took place yesterday. Uh, I'm very glad indeed that uh, despite that, uh, we decided that we should come to listen to, uh, to Dr. Elvarade. Um, Africa Day, of course, is an occasion for us to reflect on our challenges on the continent. Uh, and to look for solutions to these challenges, which, uh, of course, are many. Uh, I'm, I've been reading currently, uh, recently, a book by uh, a memoir by Musibuli Mangena, a former president of Azapo. And Musibuli raises an issue there about this business of our looking at our challenges and solutions and so on. And he says, uh, <coughs> there are some songs we sing which he does not like. Uh, and he quotes uh, one of them. Sikalela is Velagit. Dr. day that means we're crying for our country to come back to us, to be in order and all of that. So Msibudi says, but, uh, but we've got power, we are in power. <laughs> uh, why are you crying for this motherland? Why don't we take it back? So we want here to try to come cry for the fatherland or motherland. But indeed to look at what is it that we do uh, in order to bring that motherland back or whatever else we need to do uh, with regard to our continent. And we, when we do this and uh, reflect then on these challenges and finding the solutions, we, we have been inviting as you know, uh, distinguished lecturers, uh, to help us to reflect on these matters and to think about this question, what is to be done? You will recall that uh, two years ago we had President Piresh, a former president of Cape Verde, and a former leader of uh, the liberation movement of Cape Verde and uh, and Guinea-Bissau, the PIGC, um, who brought with him his own experience 
both as a liberation fighter and as a head of state, to answer these challenges, particularly on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the establishment of the OAU. And the following year, again last year, you'd remember that we had Dr. Salim Ahmed Salim, who brought his own experiences, having been Secretary General of the OAU for a number of years. And as we reflected on this matter as to who we should invite this year, we thought we should approach uh, Dr. Elvarade. We'll have uh, will come to us with a different experience. Um, and I really want to say thank you to him very much for coming. He did not hesitate. Uh, there was a bit of a problem. Um, when I said to him, the lecture will be in May, he read that as much. <laughs> Quite why, I don't know. <clears throat> and so he said, terribly sorry, I can't come. March is a busy month. So I said, uh, uh, Dr. Barade, I'm glad it's a busy month, but I want you in May. <laughs> oh, okay. But thanks a lot. Thanks for, for coming. We are hosting today a Nobel Peace Prize winner, um, a laureate who uh, got uh, the Nobel Peace Prize for this enormous and invaluable work he has done with regard to the matter of nuclear weapons. To make sure that uh, these weapons of mass destruction are never activated by anybody to destroy, in reality, all humanity. And we're very, very pleased indeed, Dr. Ibarade, when we saw the announcement that you, together with the International Atomic Energy Agency, had been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. And partly because... <laughs> partly because uh, uh, Dr. Ibarade over the recent years, if I may say this, uh, many people who get the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, when you look, you say, what kind of peace have they brought us? Uh, <laughs> it requires different prizes, not peace prizes for some of these people, but for you, the peace prize is appropriate. <laughs> I'm saying that the leaders that we've been, we've been requesting to come, they are people who come with different experiences, and so we've thought that that would enrich their own contribution to us in terms of what they have to do. And Dr. Alvarade, as we all of us know, was Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency for many years, for which indeed he got this Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, after the 1991 uh, U.S. attack of Iraq, um, Dr. Albarade was asked from within the IAEA 
to attend to the matter of the destruction of the capacity of Iraq to produce nuclear weapons. And he did this uh, thoroughly, conscientiously, to make sure that indeed Iraq did not have capacity to produce nuclear weapons. But you know, they are always doubting Thomases. And many years later, and there are some people who thought that he had not done his job as thoroughly as he said he had. And so these people then discovered that uh, Iraq must have weapons of mass destru destruction, including nuclear weapons. And in order to deal with this dire threat, it's necessary to attack Iraq. And they did. They didn't believe in Dr. El-Baradei that this capacity in Iraq was no longer there. We, it was uh, his, his predecessor, Hans Blix, was uh, appointed to lead this team of inspectors to go and inspect, check on these weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. He couldn't find them. But still, uh, the, the doubt, doubting Thomases, as I was saying, who kept saying there must be. Uh, and these weapons are a threat to us. And so we decided here uh, to send the people who were responsible for our nuclear disarmament. That same team we sent them to. We spoke to Saddam Hussein and said, look, we'd like to assist with regard to this matter. He agreed. And we sent our own inspectors there. We spoke to them and went, slept, stayed with them for many days. And we wrote a report. They wrote a report for the Security Council to say we're absolutely certain there are no nuclear weapons in Iraq. The doubting Thomases continued to doubt. We ended up with a war. Um, to find these Weapons which people were saying were a threat to them, which were not there. And today we are faced with the crisis that we are faced with with regard to Iraq. If only they had believed what Dr. Varaday had said, we would not be in the mess in which we are today. I'm quite sure that all of us are very happy that... Uh, uh, there are negotiations going on between Iran and the permanent members of the Security Council plus Germany to find a solution to this matter which has been a co of controversy for quite a long time, the issue of nuclear weapons and Iran. I'm mentioning this because, again, Dr. Albarante, as Director General of the IAEA, uh, played a very important role in saying that to address the matter of nuclear weapons in Iran or anywhere else, we mustn't be drive driven by particular political agendas. It's necessary to establish what the truth is 
So a charge is made about Iran working to produce nuclear weapons, but let's, let's verify that. And so indeed they worked at the International Atomic Energy Agency to check on this, to make sure that Iran reports properly as a, as a signatory of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty uh, to meet its obligations in order to be able for the IAEA uh, to be able to advise as to the state of affairs with regard to this matter. And I'm quite sure that's why humanity has been able to avoid the war in Iran. Because this time, at least people listened when he as Director General of the IEA said, let's not go to war Let's check. And indeed, even issues like sanctions and so on, these must be matters of last resort. But let's solve the problem. Make sure that indeed Iran does not have nuclear weapons. But again, yeah, some people were never satisfied. There are some people who are unhappy about the positions that he took. And so when he ran for his last term, as Director General of the IEA, there's one very important country in the world which was extremely unhappy. They didn't want him to continue. So they actually campaigned against him not to be re-elected as Director General of the IEA. But fortunately, they were the only ones in the world who took that position. So they lost. But it was a very strange thing that you could get a country as important as that to be so upset that its way, its path to war was blocked. Uh, so upset that this man who blocks war in favor of peace must not be elected. But of course Dr. Baraday is here to us to talk about uh, our continent and these challenges. Uh, but I'm quite sure this wide experience, uh, including, as, as uh, Professor Makanya had said, as a scholar, uh, would add its own touch in terms of what he has to, to say to us this evening. Um, I, I was reading Dr. Elbaradei not, not too long ago, something written about the democratic uprising in Egypt. Um, and here is what they say about you. I won't tell you who they are so that you don't read the article. <laughs> it's a very good article, actually, very comprehensive. And it says another factor in the unsettled succession equation, as a succession to, uh, 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 to Hosni Mubarak, uh, it says another factor in the unsettled succession equation was the February 2010 return of Mohamed Al-Baradei, the long-time head of the International Atomic Energy Agency in Vienna, and the 2005 Nobel Peace Prize winner. 
he immediately launched a bold campaign against the Mubarak regime, demanding authentic free and fair elections and an end to the 29-year-old state of emergency. And although he never declared the intention to run for the presidency, he was widely viewed as the most viable candidate to wrest power from the Mubaraks. His supporters set up the National Association for Change, which began gathering one million signatures on a petition demanding all kinds of constitutional and other reforms. The diplomat warned Egypt that Egypt had become a time bomb and advocated street protests and civil disobedience to press for reforms. His appearance on the political scene galvanized the opposition as never before, with leftist parties, civil society groups, the Muslim Brotherhood rallying to his cause. And finally, Al-Baradeh laid down the gauntlet, calling for a boycott of parliamentary elections in November 2010, with the declared aim to deprive the Mubarak regime of its legitimacy. Now this paragraph, I've read it because it gives a reflection of what the people of Egypt thought of Dr. El-Baradeh. When they, for instance, began gathering those signatures, demanding all kinds of constitutional and other reforms, and indeed, as you've heard, that he had called for uh, civil disobedience, as street protests, so you can take the blame for what happened at Tahrir Square when the people responded to that. So here is somebody who is a, a leader among us with all the experience that he has. And in the end, Dr. Baraday, what we would want from you, as uh, Professor Singh said, um, your continued leadership. Um, last night, Epani uh, Pichana and, uh, and Max Bokwana were telling us about what happened to you when you arrived uh, in South Africa yesterday morning. And the protocol at the airport wanted to know how old Dr. El-Baradeh is. Uh, so they said, well, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, yes, sure, he is old. No, 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 they want to know, protocol wanted to know, is he that old? So they said, not that old, but old. <laughs> because, Dr. El-Baradeh, you are not that old. We expect of you that you will continue to play this leadership role because indeed our continent is faced with many challenges which require the kind of leadership that you've been providing such that even big powers would decide to campaign you, campaign against you when all you stood for was the truth and peace. Thanks a lot. Please. Uh, The talk shop. He provided throughout his life to the future of South Africa.
The only thing we have in common is that we are a Gemini's. And we are born one day away All right, from uh, you're still on the talk shop on SAFM, South Africa's news and information. Leader, my name is Naledi Muleo. You heard that introduction uh, from a former president, Thabo introducing that, uh, uh, His Excellency uh, Mohammed al Day, who's now at the podium. Let's have a listen to his address. So, I will have to pay my respect to Mrs. Mbeki and Mrs. Makanya and their distinguished spouses. <laughs> I'm also glad that uh, I won the Nobel Peace Prize before I read May as March, you know, and uh, I was still, I was still in, in a better shape. But it's really a great honor and pleasure and with a great sense of humility that I'm invited to deliver the Tabo Mbeki Africa Day Lecture today in partnership with the University of South Africa, UNISA. South Africa is a country that symbolizes much of Africa's history. The injustice, the struggle, the victory, the dreams, and the challenges. I'll talk today about the uprising in North Africa, and specifically the lesson learned and the challenges ahead. The uprisings in North Africa and other Arab Spring countries, so to say, are no different from uprisings that took place elsewhere in modern history. A quest for human dignity, a revolt against tyranny poverty and injustice, and a search for freedom, prosperity, and justice. But as we know from history, the march to freedom is invariably long, chaotic, and nonlinear. Because while it is not difficult to unite on what we are against, it's much more difficult to coalesce on the change needed and how to go about it. Particularly after many decades of a stifling political pluralism and the absence of civil society. Therefore, change in North Africa remains a work in progress. What I want to suggest today are some measures that can facilitate and expedite the change process, not only in North Africa, but in the rest of Africa as well. In fact, the process of change now percolating in most of Africa is taking place for the many same reasons that has driven the uprising in North Africa. The challenge before us, however, is how to ascend peacefully to a new cathartic culture based on freedom and dignity. But let me start by briefly describing the kind of world we live in so we can understand the magnitude of the task at hand. And President Becky just referred briefly to some of the environment we live in. We live in an increasingly 
paradoxical world. Amazing scientific and technological advances which enable us to make a huge leap forward. But at the same time, a striking inability to translate this accomplishment into concrete actions to uphold human dignity and maintain peace and security. While we have become closer than ever before, ironically, and at the same time, we have become distant from each other with a creeping feeling of otherness generated by growing inequalities, polarization, and a lack of human solidarity. Poverty and hunger persist at horrific levels. Conflicts have been left to fester for generations. Brutal repression and denial of human dignity are the hallmark of a third of the world nations. The sanctity of life depends who is dying and where. Rich countries are apathetic to the plight of the poor. Inequality in the distribution of wealth amongst and within countries has reached unprecedented levels. Over 50 countries, many of them so-called well-established democracies, have reportedly aided and abetted acts of torture and rendition. Target killing, cyber attacks, wiretapping, and other violations of human values and decency are systematically employed by governments with impunity. In recent years, the international community effectively did little more than wring its hands, while millions of innocent civilians were slaughtered in Rwanda, DRC Congo, Darfur, and other places. And today, violence continues to ravage our planet in Africa, Asia, even in Europe. An extremist group, ISIL, controls an, as a, an area as large as the United Kingdom. And because of nuclear and other weapons of mass destruction, we continue to live with a Democles sword of self-destruction hanging over our heads. Over two billion people struggle to survive on less than two dollars a day. And over one billion live in extreme poverty on less than a dollar and a quarter a day, with almost half of those in Africa. Some 900 million people do not have enough to eat. Millions die every year because of lack of access to medical care. Millions of refugees live in a squalor, yearning for a home. In contrast, the richest 1% will own more than all of us, all the rest, by 2016, next year. And the 80 richest individuals now have as much money as the poorest 3.5 billion people. 
these are not just numbers. The plight of the poor is invariably compounded by and result in a lack of good governance, oppression, human rights abuses, marginalization, and a deep sense of injustice and anger. Such a combination is a fertile breeding ground for conflicts, civil strife, as well as violence and extremism. This extremism continued to hide behind different masks of religion, tribalism, ethnicity, or ideology, committing the most atrocious of crimes. Boko Haram, Al-Shabaab, Ansar al-Din, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb are just some examples on our continent. All the ills we suffer, poverty, illiteracy, unemployment, communicable diseases, environmental degradation, violence and extremism feed on one another in a deadly cycle. Sadly, the ones footing the bill are the innocent civilians who are not even being provided with the most basic humanitarian assistance. It is not that we do not have the money, not at all. What the world spends on peacekeeping operation and disaster relief combined barely amounts to 1% of what we spend on armament. And we spend on armament $1.7 trillion a year. $1.7 trillion a year. Our international institutions, including the United Nations system of organization, to which I was part, have become anachronistic. They suffer from structural deficiencies, a lack of authority, and resources. As a result, they have become polarized and paralyzed. Ironically, our most significant global threats today are threats without borders, poverty, terrorism, climate change, weapons of mass destruction, communicable diseases, cyber attacks, human trafficking, illegal drugs. They all need international cooperation. No one country can overcome them on its own. So clearly, in Africa, we have heavy lifting ahead. And judging by the zeitgeist, self-reliance and working together as Africans is our best option. Africa's renowned pop musician, Yasu Nudur, said that only Africans are in a position to create the kind of transformative cultural change required. I fully agree. But the central question is where do we start? To my mind, there are some fundamental issues that are key to this transformative culture. Its central building block is an agreement on the shared values and norms that we are all ready to live by. This means constitutions and laws that meet international standards of political, economic, social, and cultural human rights, and a system of governance 
that is inclusive, transparent, and accountable. What the rules of the game, including term limits, are not changed in mid-course. Democracy is a comprehensive set of values that goes much beyond a ballot box, a multi-party system, or civilizing the leadership. In the Arab Spring countries, it is the lack of agreement on these shared values and norms that led to chaos in some places and violence in others. Tunisia succeeded after great effort to agree on a constitution that gained national consensus. In Egypt, as a result of power struggle between different factions, religious conservatives and liberals, the old regime and the revolutionaries, we had a constitutional theater of the absurd. We had seven versions of constitutions in four years before we settled on one. And for the last three years, Egypt has been without a parliament. In Libya, a botched transition has been marred by civil war two competing parliaments and two governments. And of course, no agreement on a constitution. Coming after decades of repression, where democratic culture and institutions were absent, people were not in a position, nor had the tools to organize or compromise for the public common good. There was no plan for the day after. Understanding the importance of social unity and reaching a consensus on the basic values and laws that should govern a pluralistic society is, however, fundamental for social cohesion. This is even more crucial during transition from authoritarianism to democracy when the focus should be on building a new democratic culture and new institutions irrespective of the ideological differences. The alternative, as we have seen, is violence. A formula of how to live together in a spirit of reconciliation and tolerance by looking forward is a must. South Africa's experience in this regard is both instructive and inspirational. The nascent Tunisian experience of the Islamist and secular working together and launching a Truth and Dignity Commission to bring about closure could be a model for others. One of the most intractable and divisive issues that most North African countries and in fact many of the Muslim countries continue to grapple with, is the nature of the relationship between religion, religious institutions, morality, the rule of law, and the state. The question is whether there is a need for religious reformation, or whether this conflict is a result of loss of ability to identify with the state where people then seek their primary identity 
in religion, ethnicity, or race, and where differences become a fault line. I believe both questions are valid, and measures in both directions are required, so that religious belief and a strong social contract are no longer viewed as mutually exclusive. Second, people must feel that their rights and freedoms are protected and respected in practice and not just on paper. Africa is making some progress in the areas of political participation and respect for human rights. It is essential, however, that the space for civil society be wide open to NGOs, labor union, professional syndicates, political parties, etc. Also, a free and independent broadcast media is a key, particularly in countries where illiteracy is widespread. And of course, the existence of an independent judiciary that upholds universally accepted norms of justice is a sine qua non for all the above. It is crucial, as I mentioned, that people identify with the state. But they will only do so when their human dignity and basic freedoms are respected. If that does not happen, then the authority of the state will start to crack and conflict and violence in different forms and shapes will ensue. I should also mention that once a society starts to become violent or polarized, it is often tempting for governments to adopt measures that restrict rights and freedoms in the name of law and order and national security, as we are all familiar with. While some of these measures may be justified in exceptional and extreme circumstances, there is an erroneous belief among some that security measures alone will do the trick. But as we all well know, Violence begets violence. History tell us, tells us that the only way to build a stable, peaceful, and cohesive society is through respect for human rights, equity, and policies of inclusiveness. Stability without freedom is a pseudo-stability waiting to explode. Third, human development, health, education, housing, and social welfare, and above all, employment, is the number one challenge facing Africa. Governments must create the conditions in which the private sector can flourish. The mobile telephone networks developed by African entrepreneurs have transformed Africa, in fact, in the last decade, in a way that no government could have. And stories abound of Africa as a new frontier for innovation, mobile money, technology hubs, etc. And it is heartening, of course, to see brilliant young African entrepreneurs making headway. But we need to be aware, however, that economic liberalization does not absolve the state 
from its primary responsibility to ensure that everyone has a decent standard of living and access to basic needs. Development plans measured by growth rate only are not complemented by appropriate social policies, nor resulting in job creation, often lead to growing inequality and social unrest. Egypt development plan before the 2011 uprising is a good case in point. It achieved a high rate of growth, I think it was like 7%, but it was a jobless growth with no or little impact on poverty alleviation, leading, in fact, to growing inequality. We must also guard carefully against the patronage and corruption system that are emerging with economic liberalization. Corruption, in the words of Transparency International, undermines justice and economic development and destroys public trust in governments and leaders. The recent groundbreaking conclusion of the AU ACE high-level panel on illicit financial outflows from Africa, chaired by President Mbeki, is sobering, very sobering. It estimates that Africa loses over $50 billion a year as a result of illicit financial outflows through tax evasion, bribes, and other forms of corruption, unbelievably making it a net creditor to the rest of the world. Another shocking finding is that in the last 50 years, Africa lost approximately the equivalent of all the official development assistance, ODA, it received during the same time period due to illicit financial flows. Endemic corruption is a corrosive scourge that chips away at societies from top to bottom. It is no surprise that rule of law and safety governance indicators continue to show disturbing trends in Africa. A lot of the corruption in many African countries is in the public sector, not least because of the meager pay of government and public sector officials, as I understand, not in South Africa, but in many other African countries. <laughs> and it is the poor who suffer the consequences. Low quality education, lack of access to health service, high cost of basic needs, inadequate infrastructure. In all our development efforts, Education remains critical. Egypt and Libya, unlike Tunisia, suffer from a high level of illiteracy and low quality education. Quality education has had a transformative effect within a little more than a generation, everywhere it was introduced. That's why countries like Switzerland and Singapore, with little natural resources, are among the wealthiest nations on earth. Sub-Saharan Africa has the largest proportion of young people in the world, with 70% under the age of 30. They represent the number one natural resource, not oil, gold, or diamonds, 
But education remains a major challenge, and youth illiteracy rate is the highest of any region in sub-Saharan Africa. Some 43 million school-aged children are still outside the formal education system, and quality education remains a prime hurdle. Lack of focus on education also fuels the tragedy of brain drain, forcing the best and the brightest to leave. Africans have distinguished themselves in all walks of life. Many of them would be only too happy to use their skills and expertise back home if the right environment was there. It is the responsibility of governments to harness the potential of the African diaspora. A number of countries, mostly in Asia, have policies for reverse brain drain. South Korea and China are two examples. Fourth, sustained economic opportunity is essential. Most of Africa continue to suffer from weak infrastructure, a neglected rural sector, and uncompetitive business environment. Across the continent, we see a plethora of laws, plans, and visions for development, but too often they exist only on paper. Government needs to learn to turn words into deeds and address the issues of implementation, making things happen. Let us take a look, look at energy, an issue I'm a bit familiar with. Energy is the engine of growth. Six, but 600 million people, 600 million people, 70% of the population of sub-Saharan Africa have no access to electricity. A lack of access to any affordable and reliable modern energy services. I know, as I was telling President Mbeki, that there are 4 million die every year prematurely because of noxious fumes, because they don't have access to modern cooking facilities. These services are critical enablers in reducing poverty, improving health, increasing productivity, enhancing competitiveness, and promoting economic growth. The African continent is still in the dark after nightfall. School children cannot read after dusk. Business cannot grow. Clinics cannot refrigerate medicine or vaccine. And industries are idle, hampering economic growth, jobs, and livelihood. The entire installed generic capacity of sub-Saharan Africa, excluding South Africa, is 28 gigawatt. It is equivalent to that of one single country, Argentina. This is, cannot stand. African countries enjoy vast natural energy resources, oil, coal, gas, not to mention hydro and solar power. Africa uses only 3% of its water for hydropower. The equivalent figure for South Asia is 52%. According to the International Energy Agency, headquartered in Paris, three 
actions in the energy sector, if accompanied by more general government reform, governance reform, can boost the sub-Saharan economy by a further 30% in 2040. One, an upgraded power sector that reduces power outages and achieves universal electricity access in urban areas. Two, deeper regional cooperation by expanding markets and unlocking a greater share of the continent hydropower potential. And three, more efficient and transparent financing of essential improvement to infrastructure. Another important area where Africa has so far conspicuously failed to make much progress is effective regional integration and cooperation. Despite the existence of eight regional economic communities committed to free movement of people, goods, and services, implementation again has been weak. Regional economic integration enables countries to compete more effectively and enhances economic growth and stability. But today, African countries trade far too little with each other. To shore up implementation of its development agenda, Africa needs to move from over-dependence on foreign trade to expansion of regional trade, and from exporting to processing commodities, so to add value, create jobs, and expand domestic markets. Africa should also move from reliance on shrinking official development assistance and look more to African sources of finance. At the international level, African countries need to engage in genuine political cooperation and develop unified position so that more consideration is, giving, is given to, to their concerns. According to the African proverb, when the music changes, so does the dance. The influence of the European Union on the world stage has grown steadily as it has become better at speaking with one voice. It is gratifying that the African Union is playing an increasing role in trying to resolve the many tragic armed conflicts which still plague our continent. African increased military spending by 65% over the past decade is an illustration of its fragile peace and security environment. Peacekeeping and peace efforts in Africa have a mixed record, but are, however, key areas in which African countries must demonstrate greater readiness to take the lead in solving problems in their own backyard. The African unions need to be more robust and better financed if it is to achieve its full potential. Africa's governance is improving in many respects and a bright future awaits the continent. Poverty, inequality, communicable diseases, oppression, violence, and environment degradation represent immense challenges, no doubt. And as I mentioned earlier, many of the drivers of the Arab Spring 
are present on the continent. These grisly realities shame us all. But we must not ignore the real progress that has been made and the many African success stories. Over a decade ago, the magazine The Economist described Africa as a hopeless continent. But in 2011, it published a piece under the headline Africa Rising. Africa is now the second fastest growing region after Asia, with an encouraging but still inadequate average growth rate of about 5%. With its enormous assets and resources, Africa can certainly do better. Africa today has all the potential to undergo the cultural transformation our founding fathers dreamt of, a culture of peace based on human dignity, social justice, compassion, and solidarity. This will require the right set of political measures and economic and social policies I talked about, together with an environment based on inclusiveness, equity, trust, and dialogue. An environment that constrains the human impulse for violence and adjusts our mindset to understand that we are all the same human family, irrespective of our superficial differences of religion, ethnicity, or race. The challenges we face are bigger than any single country, conflict, issue, or person. And we have to recognize that none of us is going to prevail alone. We will either swim together or think together. William James said, We are all like islands in the sea, separate on the surface, but connected in the deep. It is time to think differently and act differently. Dabo Mbeki in his most memorable and moving speech, but, but more importantly, the speech where he stretched a full hand to the entire humanity, told us, as Professor Ting mentioned, nothing can stop us now. And Nelson Mandela reminds us that it always seems impossible until it is done. I truly believe, and you should too, that Africa can. Thank you very much. And that was the address here at the 6th Annual Tabo Mbeki Africa Day Lecture brought to you uh, by the Tabo Mbeki Foundation alongside UNISA. My name is Naledi Molo. You're on the talk shop on FM, South Africa's news and information leader. That address there coming from His Excellency Dr. Mohamed uh, El Baradei.